way down at the end where the pins are, it'd always get messed up. And at least once while we were playing, I'd have to hit the reset button because it was all messed up. And years ago when we got a GameCube for my son and he started learning to play video games, he learned pretty quickly he didn't have to let me win. Because he could start the game over if I got too far ahead. And so, you know, we understand sometimes, and they're very valuable things. We don't have to go crash jet airplanes. We have simulators so that pilots can learn to fly in a simulator. And if things go wrong, you restart the process. And so we, we, we understand that concept, but sometimes, as we do life, we talked about out at the park a few weeks ago, Satan lands a punch. Things don't go the way we'd like them to. Uh, we let our guard down and we give in to sin and sometimes it's really bad and sometimes we feel like we need to start over. And so in the few minutes we have, I want to think about David and I want to think about what he teaches us regarding when something has gone wrong. And we may never have a sin problem like David's where it just spirals out of control and people end up dead because of us. It may never go that bad. But I think from David, when we do find the bottom of the valley, we learn some things about how to find revival and how to find renewal. And, and a couple of the things that we'll notice briefly there about how do we view sin and how do we interact with sin or how do we deal with that in our lives. And then the third thing is, where's our focus? And, and through that, that's what we'll spend our time looking at tonight. David writes Psalm 51 after finding one of the very low points of his life. And you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 12, we talked about those two chapters in the teen class this morning, but David, he's not where he's supposed to be, and because he's not where he's supposed to be, he ends up on the roof and he sees Bathsheba, and there's lust, and he finds out about her, finds out that she's married, doesn't allow that to stop him. He has her brought to him, and out of this adulterous relationship, a child is born. And from there, David tries to cover it up. He brings Uriah, her husband, home. He wants Uriah to come home so that they'll think the child's Uriah's. But Uriah doesn't fall into the plan the way David would like him to. So finally, he has Uriah murdered so that he can marry Bathsheba. It's this out-of-control sin problem. One sin piling up on top of the next. And it finally takes Nathan the prophet. Nathan sets up a story so that David can see himself through the window instead of in the mirror. In other words, Nathan shares this story about a rich guy who's got everything and one guy who's got just one little lamb and the rich guy takes the one man's little lamb and, and by looking at the story through the window, David gets angry. That guy ought to die. And you remember Nathan comes back and says, well, David, you're the man. And finally David's awake. And in that bottom of that valley... He begins to understand that he needs to find his way back to God. We know the verse in Psalm 51, kind of the centerpiece verse in that chapter, where the Bible says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And when we do have trouble, it's not as easy as hitting the start over button or rebooting the computer, but because we serve a patient God, there is a blessing in that He has provided a way for us to find revival and a way for us to find renewal. And so the question is, it's not a matter of is sin going to happen in my life. The question is, after sin occurs in my life, the big question is, what happens next? And so again from Psalm 51, 
We want to notice a couple of characteristics of people who need to find revival and then one way about how we have our focus. So the first thing briefly to think about is the idea that if we're going to successfully live life and if we're going to deal with sin as it occurs in our life, one thing we've got to be firmly uh, understanding is the idea that the battle against sin is lifelong. We talk about the Christian race being a marathon and not a sprint. And sometimes we get a little bit frustrated because of the length of the race. It's it's a long race. It's not an easy race. It's a war between flesh and between spirit. If you've got your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans, the seventh chapter. Because Paul understood that there's this battle, and Paul had some frustrations, and we're not going to... We could begin in verse 14 and read all the way through 25. We're not going to do that. But I want to share just a couple of the verses here. You can go back and read more on your own. But in verse 18, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. You ever been there? For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. He he says, in my mind, I know how I ought to be living, and I know what actions I ought to take, I know what I ought to do, and then, even though I know that, I look and I, I realize what I've done, and I've gone and I've done exactly what I knew not to do. And so when you get down to verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And the answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He understands it's a battle. It's a battle today. I like one of the things that John shared with the young people at the end of class this morning because we were talking about making wise choices and good choices and and all those sorts of things. And John just reminded the young people that, hey, just because you become an adult, the challenge of making the right choice, it, it doesn't suddenly become easy. He's reminding them that it's a lifelong battle that we're all... Involved in. We've got to have a willingness to acknowledge sin in our lives. And and you see that in David. When Nathan finally gets his attention in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David's statement, his first statement back to Nathan is, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he takes ownership. Notice in Psalm 51, I want to read the first four verses of this psalm. When you see David, I want you to note all the personal pronouns that he uses as he talks about what's gone on in his life. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. I listen to a lot of sports talk, radio. And one of the things you'll hear athletes talk about is the idea of, of wearing the hat or taking responsibility or saying, you know, if I've, if, I've, if I've let the team down, I need to be able to say that it's on me. And sometimes you'll see athletes do that. And sometimes you'll see athletes blame the coach or blame the teammates and not take ownership. You see David owning his sin 
in this text. And if we're going to fight this lifelong battle, that's one of the things that we've got to be able to do. And then in terms of marathon thinking, we've got to remember, and notice what he says in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Not the idea that David's born with sin attached to his account, but it's the idea that we are born into a world where, where there, is, there, there is evil, and there are problems, and there are bad things going on. Sin is all around us, and so we are trying to live a different way, counterculturally, you might say, to the world. That's one of the reasons the battle is lifelong. Number two tonight, people who would refine revival. If I found the valley, if I'm going to find my way out, one of the things that we've got to be the kind of folks that, that we've got to be the kind of folks who do not become too comfortable with sin, with doing wrong. See, one of the problems with David, while he was in this blind spiral, he, he does one thing wrong, and it leads to another thing wrong, and, and he's gotten so comfortable, he's not even thinking about what's going on in his life. He got way too comfortable around sin. And we could go through the cultural examples. We live in a day and time where it's very difficult for us to not be affected in a way where we're kind of numb to that. We talked about the idea that sometimes we're desensitized to the bad things that go on around us. Well, how might we know? Are there some signs that, that might point me toward the idea that, that maybe I'm getting a little bit too comfortable with things that just aren't good? One would be, and I mentioned it just a moment ago, if my reaction when I've done wrong is to blame others, I might be too comfortable with sin. David didn't. Once Nathan has David's attention, because there are a lot of people David could have blamed. David could have blamed his men. It was spring, it was the time of year when kings go out to war, and David had not gone. Why did my men, why did my inner circle, why did they not sit me down and take me out to war where I should have been in the first place? And then there's Bathsheba. I mean, after all, why is she out there bathing where I can see her? Why? I mean, I'm on the roof, I know that, but why is she out there where I can see her? Surely some of this blame must fall on her. And then what about Uriah? You know, if Uriah had just done what the king ordered, if Uriah had gone down to his house, we could have swept this under the rug, it would have all disappeared. And then Nathan, I, you know, Nathan, it sounds a little bit like, you've told me this story, it sounds a little bit like you're judging me here, Nathan, and I, you know, who are you to point out the problems in my life? And David could have even tried to blame God. You know, God, you're the one that created me this way. I, when I see attractive woman, I, you know, you created me this way. And, and God, why did you go and make that woman so attractive? You know, if we want to start blaming, there's always somebody to blame. But David doesn't do that. Do we take ownership? Second thing that sometimes occurs when we're confronted with having done wrong is sometimes we want to rationalize. Well, this may have been my... This may, I may have done the wrong thing here, I'll grant you that, but I'm still a better king than King Saul ever thought about being. That's rationalizing. Or, you know, I'm only human. What other male with power and authority like I had, what other male wandering around on the roof that night wouldn't have made all the same decisions that I made? That's rationalizing. It's a fallacy. 
Anytime we start comparing ourselves to some other human standard, rather than comparing ourselves to the standard, the, the other words, what I need to do is I need to compare my life to Jesus. I need to hold my life up against the standard found in the Word of God. And when I'll compare that way, then I'm never going to have room to rationalize my sin. Uh, the third thing that maybe we could get caught up in is this idea that we just simply no longer know how to blush at sin. I've gotten so comfortable because one of the things you see in Psalm 51 is you read the words of David here, you see a shame face, David. You see a red face in this psalm. And I wonder sometimes if we haven't gotten so comfortable that we've lost our ability to blush, like the book of Jeremiah talks about. Sin is devastating. Sin is what separates a person from God. But the question is, am I devastated by my sin? Now, now David, he recognizes he's, he's done wrong. And that's why in verse 4 he says, so that you're justified when you speak, you're blameless when you judge. God, whatever you decide is appropriate as punishment for me, if you decided it's appropriate because I'm in the wrong. Sin is devastating, but the real question is, does it devastate us when we find ourselves giving in? Willard Tate from down in Texas, he tells a story about his grandson, and, and I, we don't have too many youngsters in here tonight, but I'll, I'll do a couple of disclaimers. Uh, number one would be, don't try this at home. Uh, number two, uh, the disclaimer is, fireworks and plumbing never go well together. The grandson, it was near 4th of July, he'd been to the fireworks stand and he had bought some stuff that blows up underwater. Now, I'm going to be 50 in September and if you bring me something and say that if you light this underwater, it'll still blow up, I'm going to try it. I'm going to figure, I want to see that happen. That's just part of it. Well, this young man, he's a kid, and so he, he wants to try it out, but he makes a bad decision. He decides he'll try it out in the bathroom sink uh, not just any bathroom sink, but this is the bathroom that they have just completely remodeled. And so you might think about when you blow something up, you might think about water going up and splashing the ceiling, but, but, but what you may not re realize, and I'm sure he never thought about this, it completely blew the bottom of the sink. And, and so as they're telling the story, uh, Tate says, you know, there's, there was a hot standing there and a cold standing there, and that was all that was left, just two stops, you know, for the hot and the cold. Well, the kid is devastated. He's crying uncontrollably and he goes to his mom and, and she says, you know, I don't want to deal with you right now. And he'd saved a little bit of money and he brings two $50 bills and he lays one on the hot and one on the cold. And she, she says, son, put your money away. That's not going to touch the devastation you've created. And then she uses the phrase that none of us want to hear. Just go to your room and we'll let your dad deal with you when he gets home. Well, as luck would have it, Grandfather Tate, who's telling this story, he was scheduled to eat supper with them that night. And so when Grandfather Tate arrives, the first thing he notices is that his grandson is still alive. And so he figures that's a good sign. But he kind of goes over to his son. And he says, so son, uh, how'd you deal with your son today when you got home? What'd you do? And so his son says, well, why don't you ask your grandson... And so Grandfather Tate goes to Grandson and says, Well, tell me about what happened when your daddy got home today. And he said, Well, Dad got home and he said he had some errands to run and he told me to get in the Suburban with him. And so we got in the Suburban and we went and ran all those errands and then he took me and we got some ice cream. And this is where Grandfather Tate 
you know, about passes out because you've destroyed part of the house. Your dad comes home, and as a reward for destroying part of the house, you get ice cream. And the grandson said, my dad explained to me that that's how Jesus treats us when we're truly sorry for what we've done. I'm pretty sure my dad wouldn't have taken me for ice cream. I'm not so sure I'd take my son for ice cream in that situation. But that grandson that day learned a valuable lesson about a God who revives us when we're truly devastated by the wrong that maybe we've done. The third thing that we'll mention in the lesson is yours tonight. People who want to find revival after failure, when we're trying to find our way back, we put our focus back on the mission. When we falter and then repent and we begin to experience renewal, this third characteristic of holy people that we want to notice, it's this idea that focus goes back to where it should have been maybe all along. David, he's, he's sorry for his sin. We've noticed the first four verses, and you can read some other parts of that where he is devastated by what he's done. But then notice what happens in verse 12. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. See, the, the idea that we're fighting this battle, and it's a lifelong battle, and we go through all these things, one thing we're never supposed to lose sight of is that there is a joy to our salvation. And so he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. As I find my way back and as I repent of my sin, I want to get my focus back on the idea that there, there is an important role for me to play and it's the idea that there are people who need to be right with you. He says in verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. When we want to be experiencing renewal and revival and being back where we need to be, one of the natural things that we ought to begin to think about is to get a focus off of me and a focus on to others. David recognizes where his focus should be. What are we devoted to? We're not going to go to Acts 2 and read. We've read from there in just recent lessons. But the early church, what are we devoted to? Well, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they're devoted to worship, and they're devoted to prayer. Those things are important to them. Are those things important to us? And as the church is growing and all these great things are happening, they're devoted to each other. The second question is, who are we devoted to? Our devotion needs to include a devotion to sharing the good news. A devotion to fellowship. Because if we'll be devoted to the same things the early church was, God will bless us with the same kind of results that you see in the early church. The same kind of results that Mari was sharing with us a few minutes ago. Acts verse, chapter 2, verse 47, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. When we fall, God wants to renew holiness within us. 
He wants us to find revival. He wants to relight the fire that is supposed to constantly burn within us. He wants us to experience a right relationship with Him. But in order for Him to do that, we must deal with sin properly, never lose our focus on the reason that we're here, And so tonight as we get ready to sing the song that's been selected, I just want to ask you a couple of questions regarding that battle with sin. How are you doing? Maybe in some ways you've given up on the battle. Maybe you need to find renewal and revival tonight. Maybe you're simply weary from the battle. Maybe just a little bit tired and you, you need your strength renewed. Maybe you need the strength that comes through prayer. Maybe in some way you've become too comfortable with sin and and it doesn't devastate anymore. Maybe it's been rationalizing. Maybe it's been blaming others. Maybe you've lost your ability to blush. Sometimes that happens to us. Maybe you need to refocus on the mission this evening. I love one of the things that was repeated several times during the presentation night. Several times Mari mentioned he or she knows what he or she needs to do. And I think that's how it is for most of us. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you've probably been taught and you understand and you understand why baptism is important and you understand that's where sins are washed away, that's where you connected the blood of Jesus, you know what you need to do. The big question is, why do you wait? And then for those of us who are Christians, when we stumble and when we fall, we, we know that we need to confess that, and we know we need to make things right. We know what we need to do. Sometimes pride gets in the way, but it's almost we almost always know what we need to do. And so if there's something you need to do tonight, I hope that you'll let that be known while we stand and while we sing.